1: You go, sir, to France, to strengthen our friendship with that country. You will show our confidence in the French Republic, without betraying the most remote mark of undue complacence. You will let it be seen that in case of war, with any nation on earth, we shall consider France as our first and natural ally. You may dwell upon the sense which we entertain of their past services. This excerpt comes from Secretary of State Edmund Randolph's official instructions to James Monroe, written in June 1794, for Monroe's mission to France. He had not been the president's first choice, but Monroe went with the administration's hopes that he would be able to cultivate a better relationship with the French Republic than his predecessor, the Federalist Governor Morris. Monroe was also charged with the task of smoothing out some of the existing difficulties lingering from the Genet Affair, as well as quelling any tensions that developed due to the anticipated success of Chief Justice John Jay's mission to negotiate a treaty with Britain. Moreover, Monroe would be counted on to provide information about what was happening on the ground in France. The reports that had been making their way across the Atlantic were troubling, and having an official agent in Paris positioned both close to the halls of power and with his eyes and ears open might prove useful to the U.S. Little did they know just how close Monroe would get to the leaders of the French Republic. Washington biographer James Thomas Flexner noted the differences in how the president and his new minister viewed Monroe's appointment to the post in Paris when Flexner wrote, quote, "...still desirous to represent not a faction, but the whole nation." Washington had been glad to balance the appointment satisfactory to one party, i.e., Jay's appointment as Special Envoy to Great Britain, with an appointment satisfactory to the other. The safety for American policy of this course depended on two assumptions— First, that the recipient of such high appointment would, on acceptance, lay his political prejudices on one side, acting with his colleagues as part of a unified team to achieve what was best for the Commonwealth. Second, that the president would be kept informed and would be obeyed as the final arbiter. Monroe saw the situation exactly the other way around. Since his policies were well known he regarded his appointment as an assurance to the American and the French people that these, i.e. Monroe's policies, were approved by the government. Entrusted as he saw it, to act in his own right, Monroe paid little attention to those parts of his instructions which did not agree with his own predilections. As you can imagine, dear listener, this misunderstanding was sure to cause much consternation for all parties involved on down the line. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. To start with, special thanks to James Early for providing the intro for this week's episode. James, in addition to being a professor at San Jacinto College in Texas, is also the organizing force behind a Facebook group that I've mentioned on here a couple of times, the American History Fanatics. It is a great group for students of American history to gather, learn from one another, and engage in fun trivia contests and discussions. It was one of the group contests that inspired James's new podcast, which he co-hosts with a fellow fanatic, Scott Rank, called the Presidential Fight Club. 44 presidents enter a hypothetical ring, one emerges as the champion. I'll post some links on the website, but you can find out more at PresidentialFightClubAllOneWord.com. all one word, dot com. After you finish up this episode, go check it out and see how our own George Washington fares. Speaking of, let's get this episode going. Before we get to Amesh in Monroe's mission, I think it would be helpful to get caught up on where we're at with the French Revolution, then, after covering Monroe's arrival, make our way back across the pond and link back up with Washington and Secretary of the Treasury Hamilton, when the last episode had set off in a presidential coach towards western Pennsylvania. Then we'll return to Philadelphia to await news of Jay's Treaty. Sound good? Right then. Away we go. We last left off with events in France in episode 1.19, with Marie Antoinette and the Girondins losing their heads in October 1793. Between that point and James Monroe's arrival at La Havre on July 31, 1794, much had transpired. As this is the Presidencies of the United States and not the French Revolution podcast, it falls out of our scope to go into all the ins and outs of the revolution. But there is one big development that we must discuss. For by the time Monroe arrived in Paris, Maximilien Robespierre would be dead. I can already hear what you're saying. But Jerry, you just introduced him in episode 1.19. Isn't he the most well-known figure of the revolution? Yes, that's true. But as difficult as it may be to believe, given all the attention given to Robespierre, the period in which he effectively controlled the French Republic was relatively short. Still, it was an ambitious time. Robespierre and the Jacobins not only sought control, but also to remake French society. They imposed a new calendar on France on October 5, 1793, based on the date of the founding of the French Republic. So when it was put into effect, it was already year two of the new calendar. Part of the reason for the new calendar was that so much of the previous calendar system was based around religion, and the new calendar was seen as a powerful de-Christianization tool to realign citizens to be loyal first to the state, rather than to God or the church. This did not mean that Robespierre wanted to completely do away with spirituality, however. Far from it. As noted by historian William Doyle, who wrote that, quote, Robespierre believed that religious faith was indispensable to orderly, civilized society. To Robespierre, however, this faith would be expressed through the civil institutions centered on the idea of a Supreme Being, capital S, capital B. Extreme elements, however, went further than Robespierre was willing to go at the end of 1793, and the Paris Commune on November 23rd ordered the closure of all churches in Paris. The National Convention on December 6th would approve a decree, quote, to reiterate the principle of religious freedom... And formally prohibit all violence or threats against the liberty of cults. But the damage was already done. Quote, by the spring of 1794, churches were open for public worship only in the remotest corners of France, such as the Jura Mountains. By then, perhaps 20,000 priests had been bullied into giving up their status, and 6,000 had given their renunciation the ultimate confirmation by marrying. Robespierre and his supporters would work at the end of 1793 to consolidate their rule with the Law of 14 Frumaire, named after the date in the new revolutionary calendar in which it was passed. This law would solidify the structure of the revolutionary government with the executive authority of the state being invested, quote, in the Committee of Public Safety in matters of administration and police. Quote, the principles animating the Law of 14 Frumaire was extreme centralization. And it worked for a time. However, the beginning of 1794 would find Robespierre becoming, quote, increasingly obsessed with cleansing the Republic of the corrupt and all who fell short of his exacting standard of virtue. One revolutionary leader after another would find himself judged and found wanting by Robespierre and led off to the guillotine. Even Georges-Jacques Danton, who had been a leading radical figure in the revolution since the beginning, would be led to the guillotine on April 5th the terror would reach its crescendo in June and July of 1794 with just over 1,500 people being executed in Paris alone during that time. As noted by Doyle, quote, a far higher proportion of those executed were from the upper ranks of society during that time than in the terror as a whole. 38% of its noble victims and 26% of its clerical ones were dispatched during this short phase and almost half of those from the richer bourgeoisie. Never was the terror closer to being an instrument of social discrimination rather than one punishing specific counter-revolutionary acts than in these months. The same time period, however, would find more people feeling that Robespierre, like Icarus, was flying too close to the sun and was primed for a fall. Robespierre had continued developing his ideas on the civic cult of the Supreme Being, which he shared in full in a speech before the National Convention on May 7th. He called for a grand national celebration on 20 Prairial, a month from his speech, which also happened to fall on the date of Whit Sunday in the Christian calendar. In Paris, Robespierre entrusted the preparations for the celebration to the painter Jean-Jacques David and the festival of the Supreme Being on 20 Prairial. Or June 8th in our calendar, is described as follows quote, David had built an artificial mountain in the Champ de Mars, surmounted by a tree of liberty, and thither a mass procession made its way from the Tuileries. At its head marched the members of the convention, led by their president, who happened that week to be Robespierre. He, Robespierre, used the opportunity to deliver two more eulogies of virtue and republican religion, pointedly ignoring, though not failing to notice, the smirks of some of his fellow deputies at the posturings of this pseudo-pope. Others found it no laughing matter. Look at the bugger, muttered Thurio, an old associate of Danton. It's not enough for him to be master. He has to be god. It was not long later, before there was a rebellion in Robespierre's heaven, and unlike in Dante, this god was overthrown. Robespierre had isolated himself for much of the preceding month in his lodging and thus was not aware of the dissension in the ranks when he delivered a speech on July 26th described as, quote, a long rambling speech, naming few names but full of threats against seemingly everybody. He declared that there existed a conspiracy against public liberty involving unspecified numbers of deputies and said that these traitors must be punished. Their factions crushed. That was more than enough for some who felt that their heads might be on the chopping block next. And the National Convention on July 27th called for Robespierre's arrest. July 28th was spent in a power struggle as factions had to decide whether they were pro or anti-Robespierre. But ultimately, the antis were able to assemble a force powerful enough that they were able to march on the Hôtel de Ville at 2 in the morning on July 29th to take Robespierre into custody. Robespierre had tried to commit suicide by shooting himself in the head, but he failed in that attempt and succeeded only in breaking his jaw. Quote, It was in this maimed state that he went to the guillotine the next afternoon. This, dear listener, was the Paris that Monroe was entering into in August 1794, one that was still in the early stages of what would come to be known as the Thermidorian Reaction named after the month in the French Republican calendar in which the revolt occurred. The Monroes arrived in Paris on August 2nd and had to wait for the outgoing minister, Governor Morris, to arrive back in the city before he could be presented to the foreign affairs representative of the French Committee of Public Safety, which at that point was still facing an uncertain future and was fearful of provoking the Thermidorian mobs. Thus, the initial meeting was tense. On the 13th, however, Monroe received an invitation from Merlin de Douai, president of the French National Convention, inviting him to come to the convention the next day. As described by Monroe biographer Harry Ammond, quote, At two in the afternoon on the 14th, he, Monroe, entered the chamber of the 700-member convention after making his way through a friendly throng of several thousand spectators gathered outside. As he entered the hall, he was greeted with clapping and loud cries of, Long live the convention! Long live the United States of America, our brave brothers. Monroe then went on to deliver a speech in which he asserted that, quote, Republics should approach near to each other. This is more especially the case with the American and French republics. Their governments are similar. They both cherish the same principles and rest on the same basis, the equal and unalienable rights of men. The recollection, too, of common dangers and difficulties will increase their harmony. And cement their union. America had her day of oppression, difficulty, and war, but her sons were virtuous and brave, and the storm which long clouded her political horizon has passed, and left them in the enjoyment of peace, liberty, and independence. France has now embarked in the same noble career. And I am happy to add that whilst the fortitude, magnanimity, and heroic valor of her troops command the admiration and applause of the astonished world, the wisdom and firmness of her counsels unite equally in securing the happiest result. The Dwayne gave a gushing reply in which he said that, quote, the sweetest fraternity that existed between France and the United States would, quote, complete the annihilation of an impious coalition of tyrants and embraced Monroe before inviting the minister to sit in the chamber as the convention voted to recognize Monroe as the U.S. minister to France, then approved a resolution to fly the American flag in the chamber next to the flag of France. This fraternal embrace... Once news of it made its way back to the United States, would help the administration to understand just how far Monroe was from the official foreign policy of the government. It must be remembered that this was all taking place while John Jay was working to negotiate with the British in London, which was top priority in Washington's foreign policy. How would drawing so close to France, which was still at war with Britain, affect those negotiations? It seems as if Monroe, who had tried to thwart Jay's efforts even before departing from Philadelphia, either didn't care about the potential effects or wouldn't mind if Jay's negotiations were sabotaged. There will be much more to say about the Washington administration's reactions to Monroe's early days in Paris. But for now, let us leave the throes of revolutionary passion of France and turn our attention to where revolutionary fervor was petering out.
0: And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.
1: Washington had been receiving reports for months about a countryside raging with rebellious spirit. Imagine his surprise then as he rode further west to find, well, nothing. A revolution that just a couple of months before had shown signs of spreading from western Pennsylvania into neighboring Virginia and Maryland with Liberty Poles and burnings and effigies sprouting up as they had in the Keystone State seemed to be scattering apart even more quickly than it had come together. What happened to produce this result? Well, one reason was Washington's having assembled troops to march west. It's one thing to say that one is willing to take on the federal government. It's another when the federal government says, okay, and starts marching troops your way. Second, as we discussed last episode, it was clear that Attorney General William Bradford's efforts to stir dissension in the ranks of the rebels had worked. The Presidential Commission before heading back east, had ordered that all men age 18 or older appear at their township meeting places on September 11th and sign an oath of submission to federal law so that the army, when it arrived, would have documentation of who in the area was loyal to the United States and who was in open rebellion. Though the radical leaders of the rebel troops had threatened retribution to those who signed the oath, the threat of the federal military won out, and long lists of men were produced on the 11th who agreed, quote, to submit to the laws of the United States and not, directly or indirectly, oppose the execution of the acts for raising a revenue on distilled spirits and stills, and support, as far as the law requires, the civil authority in affording the protection due to all officers and other citizens. Hugh Henry Brackenridge, the moderate rebel, along with others who had been leaders in the revolution, all signed, though Brackenridge had to wait until the next morning to sign, as his polling place in Pittsburgh was closed by the time he arrived back in town after going into the countryside to be alert to any attempts to attack those who did sign. Little did Brackenridge know how important being a day late would prove to be for him shortly. After September 11th, some of the radicals left the area and headed down the Ohio River, where they would head into the wilderness and hopefully remain out of federal custody. The Pittsburgh Town Committee repealed the expulsions of pro-government citizens that they had agreed to when the rebels were threatening to burn the city to the ground and declared that the rebellion in the West was at an end. Meanwhile, Representative William Finley traveled to meet Washington in Carlisle to convince him to order the army to turn back. Washington and Secretary of the Treasury Hamilton met with Finley and another moderate, David Reddick, on October 9th. The two men shared with the president and his secretary promising news of the area's submission to federal authority. While that was all well and good, it wasn't good enough for the president. He hadn't ordered a military force to be created and marched out just to turn it back before it arrived at its destination. Besides, I know that if I was Washington, I would wonder if this was just a feint and that as soon as he got settled back in at the president's house in Philadelphia, the Mingo Creek rebels would be back at it again. No, this force was going the distance. And if nothing else, would demonstrate firsthand the strength of the federal government by marching through the area so that everyone could see what they were up against. Nothing less would do for Washington. Another thing that would not do for the president was to have his Secretary of War missing in action for two months. Washington wrote to Knox on September 30th, the day he and Hamilton left Philadelphia headed west, asserting that, quote, under the circumstances which exist to exceed your proposed time of absence so long is to be regretted, but hearing nothing from you for a considerable time has given alarm, lest some untoward accident may have been the cause of it. Why had Knox remained so long at his property in Thomaston? From existent primary records, it does not seem that we can reach a definite conclusion, but Knox biographer Mark Poles postulates that, quote, He seemed to be emotionally or spiritually worn out from years of exhausting duty and personal sacrifice. His public ambition no longer drove him. Instead, Knox yearned for private solace in the distant wilds, far from exasperating political life. Washington's letter would ultimately pass Knox as he was on the 30th already on his way back to Philadelphia, where he would arrive on the evening of October 5th. Finding the president gone and learning the reason why, he would write a short note the next day explaining that, quote, an extraordinary course of contrary winds detain me longer than I expected, and offering to join Washington, quote, at Carlisle or elsewhere, that Washington may order a rendezvous. The president replied on the ninth that, quote, it would have given me pleasure to have had you with me, and advantages might have resulted from it on my present tour, if your return in time would have allowed it. It is now too late. While we have encountered the sharp edge of Washington's tongue before, it is advisable to avoid reading too much between the lines here, as Washington later in the letter writes, quote, I am very glad to hear of your safe return. We were apprehensive something more than common had happened from no one having received a line from you for a considerable time before I left the city. As we've noted before in this podcast, these were two men with a long history, They first met back in 1775, nearly twenty years prior, and Knox had time and again proven to be a trusted and dependable subordinate, someone on whom Washington could rely. However, the President could also understand how someone could grow tired and weary in public service. While I interpret disappointment coming out of Washington's pen, I don't know that he was angry. Did he know what was likely coming? Do you, dear listener? For now, Let us turn back to Washington's progress west. As he informed Knox, Washington issued orders for the federal forces to begin marching west the next day while he was bound for Fort Cumberland to meet up with the southern wing. However, there were problems in the forward motion. Some logistical errors held up the baggage wagons for the mounted forces from New Jersey who were set to march that day and thus were delayed until the next day. When he found out, quote, Washington angrily scolded the officers in charge. Still, he was able to set off to Fort Cumberland, with the plan being for him to rejoin the Northern Wing in a few days' time. He would find there a force of 3,200 ready to march and would then head back north on, quote, the valley road that had been cut from the wilderness under his command almost 40 years earlier. As the soldiers grew ever closer to the western part of Pennsylvania, the fears of Representative Finley and others increased. What did those who had expressed their loyalty to the federal government have to fear from this force, you may ask? Well, the fact that there had already been two separate incidents in which overzealous soldiers had killed civilians in Carlisle, which, if you'll look at a map, is much closer to the eastern part of the state and in no part involved in the rebellion, might be a good place to start. Though those responsible for the two deaths would be arrested and tried, Finley, from his visit to the camp at Carlisle, had seen just how whipped into a fever pitch the soldiers were. Even a moderate like Brackenridge, because he had delayed in signing his oath, was now seen as being an arch-radical leader, and the troops were, quote, gleefully predicting he'd be hanged, skewered, some said, as soon as the Army arrived at the Ohio River. Meanwhile, some officers and soldiers were drinking and cavorting their way through the state, while others, quote, "if less personally irked by the rebels, felt resentment for the mission, and had hopes mainly for plunder. They were all hungry and cold. While families cowered in farmhouses, freelancing soldiers crashed drunk through fields of just ripened crops, tearing down fences for firewood, slaughtering chickens and pigs, building fires, and sleeping where they fell. This was not Anthony Wayne’s disciplined, or at least somewhat more disciplined, Legion of the United States. This was an ad hoc force composed of militia from various states being held together by the 18th century equivalent of scotch tape. Still, Washington would lead it on into the previously rebellious areas, and on the evening of October 18th, the president and a force of 3,000 would parade through the streets of Bedford, Pennsylvania. As described by William Hoagland, quote, Metal clanked up the steep dirt street as the mountain people watched in silence. Dragoons shouted orders. ranks sluggishly responded. At the county courthouse, the army lit a patriotic transparency, a traditional holiday dazzlement, sometimes accompanied by fireworks, and rarely seen in Bedford. This one announced the triumph of President Washington himself in large text, illuminated by candles. On the reverse, it read, Woe to Anarchy! This triumph would be the only one taken by the president, however. On October 20th, under orders from Washington, Hamilton would write to Henry Lee a rather lengthy set of, quote, instructions for the general direction of your conduct in the command of the militia army with which you were charged. Washington considered the rebellion pretty much at an end. And thus, on October 21st, despite a heavy rain, he got into his presidential carriage and headed back to Philadelphia leaving Hamilton in charge of the Northern Wing. That's right, the Secretary of the Treasury was now in charge of a military force. If that makes you feel uneasy, dear listener, then you can only imagine what the Democratic-Republican press made of it. At this point, our old friend Philip Frenot and the National Gazette had died out in 1793 after Furneaux had drifted even more radical than was comfortable for Jefferson as we saw in his direct attacks on Washington, as discussed in episode 1.17. And, losing his primary patron, Furneaux resigned from his position with the State Department and closed up the paper. As the saying goes, nature abhors a vacuum, and that seems to include the nature of politics, as it would not be long before another opposition paper would rise to prominence. Benjamin Franklin's grandson. Benjamin Franklin Bosch had founded a newspaper in Philadelphia originally called the General Advertiser in October 1790, with Bosch changing the name to the one that it would come to be better known by, the Aurora, in November 1794. With Hamilton in charge of military forces, Bosch would write in his paper on November 5th that, quote, By many, it is shrewdly suspected his conduct is a first step towards a deep-laid scheme not for the promotion of the country's prosperity, but the advancement of his private interests. Hamilton would respond that, quote, It is long since I have learnt to hold popular opinion of no value. But by his own statement, he proved the fears of the Democratic-Republicans to be valid, that Hamilton felt himself, by his position and standing, to be above petty things such as public scrutiny. We shall have to wait to see how this plays out. But I feel that I cannot overemphasize the situation. Washington delegated the leadership of a military force to a civilian cabinet member who had only assumed responsibility of the War Department while the actual Secretary of War, who is also still a civilian technically, was out of the Capitol. Knox was back in Philadelphia at this point, and this was an army technically in the field with a civilian commander, the Secretary of the Treasury. Let that one sink in for a minute. Okay, moving on. Before we return to Philadelphia, I want to wrap things up with the now-defunct Whiskey Rebellion. As the military force moved through the mountains with Lee and Hamilton in command, conditions got harsher. Quote, Horses broke down. Wheels strained against mud. Wagons tipped and capsized. Men slogging ankle deep, already fighting diarrhea and fever, were drenched and shivering. Tents were still scarce. And now, even officers slept in what they considered filthy, lice-ridden hovels. Ascents and descents seemed endlessly steep and torturous. High in the mountains, troops were miles ahead of their supplies, with no food or blankets, and only frayed clothing. Some wore flaps of ruined shoes. Many chose to negotiate the rocky ground, no matter how sharp or frigid, and bare feet. Though Washington had ordered Hamilton to, quote, maintain the highest standards of legality as it entered the western country, Hamilton, for necessity's sake, authorized the impressment of civilian property to supply the troops. Though this would threaten the ability of families who had little to begin with to survive through the winter to come, it did make conditions better for the army forces as they continued through the region. They began to make arrests and to interrogate civilians suspected to have been involved in the insurrection. These prisoners were treated in a manner and held in conditions that would now be judged as inhumane human rights violations. One instance was described as follows, quote, For more than two days, the general in charge of prisoners starved and dehydrated his shivering, exhausted captives, steadily cursing and castigating them, glorying in their helplessness, and describing their imminent hanging. Even the General's troops became concerned about the captives, who seemed barely alive when the General finally decided to move them out. He quick marched them 12 miles through bad weather to the town of Washington, where in physical and emotional collapse, they were held in jail without charge, ready for questioning. Hamilton would attempt but fail to collect enough evidence to go after Representative Finley and former Senator Albert Gallatin, but he would have more success in finding reason to take Hugh Henry Brackenridge into custody. Brackenridge would surrender to federal authorities and find himself face-to-face with Hamilton, who would question him on numerous points that had been brought up by various pro-government sympathizers, including the Nevilles, who had felt the wrath of the rebels at the Battle of Bower Hill, as discussed in episode 1.20. Brackenridge spent the entire day going back and forth with Hamilton on his conduct through the entirety of the rebellion, explaining the points where he had to, for his own safety, appear to sympathize with the rebels while acting to the benefit of the federal government. Brackenridge, though not a supporter of the excise tax on whiskey, was not a traitor to his country. The next morning, Hamilton would inform Brackenridge, quote, that not a single doubt was left about the lawyer's conduct which had been horribly misrepresented. As Brackenridge stared at him, Hamilton said, had we listened to some people, I do not know what we might have done. There was far than enough injustice done in the course of the events of the Whiskey Rebellion. Finally, the line was drawn at Brackenridge, and he was allowed to go as a free man. Washington would consider the campaign in response to the Whiskey Rebellion as being a complete success, writing in January of the following year that, quote, The spirit with which the militia turned out in support of the Constitution and the laws of our country is the most conclusive refutation that could have been given to the assertions of Lord Sheffield and others of his caste that without the protection of Great Britain, we should be unable to govern ourselves and would soon be involved in anarchy and confusion. On the contrary, under no form of government other than republicanism, Will laws be better supported, liberty and property better secured, or happiness be more effectually dispensed to mankind? Though some citizens of Pennsylvania, as well as of the Native American nations in the Northwest Territory, may have some bones to pick about that, it is true that, from the perspective of Philadelphia, the frontier was growing more stable, a civil disturbance had been quelled, and the domestic scene appeared more stable than it had for a long while. Washington would devote a good portion of his annual message to Congress that year, delivered on November nineteenth, to explaining his administration's response to the Whiskey Rebellion, as well as sharing the quote-unquote success of the administration's Indian policy, ending with the rallying call of, quote, Let us unite, therefore, in imploring the supreme ruler of nations to spread his holy protection over these United States, to turn the machinations of the wicked, to the confirming of our Constitution, to enable us at all times to root out internal sedition and put invasion to flight, to perpetuate to our country that prosperity which his goodness has already conferred, and to verify the anticipations of this government being a safeguard to human rights. Only one other event could truly prove that the United States had arrived as a nation of strength and vitality, namely the successful conclusion of the first major treaty since the ratification of the Constitution. However, the months-long lag time of letters between Britain and the U.S. meant that word was slow in coming to Philadelphia about the progress of Jay's negotiations. One thing that was quick in coming, though, as autumn gave way to winter, was another change in Washington's cabinet. Henry Knox had served in the position of Secretary of War for over nine years and was nearing a tenth. However, he had decided he would not mark a decade in office. It was time for him to go. On December 5th, he was already writing to one of his subordinates in the Northwest Territory that he intended to leave office around the end of the year. It seems as if this decision could not have come at a more opportune time to avoid any serious break with Washington, as on December 22nd, Washington received a complaint from Senator Pierce Butler about, quote, a defect in the procurement process for acquiring timber to construct the new naval frigates. Whether this could be attributed to Knox or not, Washington, while sending the letter on to Knox on the 23rd, asserted in a brief note that, quote, the information which Butler's letter contains being of a serious nature, I request that strict inquiry may be instituted into the matter, and a report thereupon made to me it was clear that there would be no more gallivanting off on personal affairs for the Secretary of War. Washington would expect someone to meticulously oversee this important project as well as other affairs, including the execution of Indian policy that were run through the War Department. However, it seems just as clear that Knox did not feel that he could give that level of devotion any more. Thus, he did all he could to put his office in order by sending various reports to Congress on everything from, quote, the ongoing work to erect federal forts along the frontiers and the project to build a line of coastal defenses for the nation's harbors, as well as, quote, the ongoing efforts to organize, aim, and train the state militias. He detailed where the project to build the first six naval frigates stood, both the successes as well as problems encountered in the process. Most importantly, though, Knox informed his longtime commander that he was leaving the field of battle. Around Christmas, he informed the president in person of his intention to retire from his office and sent a formal letter of notification on December 28th. In it, he would assert that, "...after having served my country nearly 20 years, the greatest portion of which, under your immediate auspices," It is with extreme reluctance I find myself constrained to withdraw from so honorable a situation, but in whatever situation I shall be, I shall recollect your confidence and kindness with all the fervor and purity of affection of which a grateful heart can be susceptible. Washington would reply on the 30th that while he understood the personal concerns which were pulling Knox from his office, quote, I can only wish that it was otherwise. I cannot suffer you, however, to close your public service without uniting with the satisfaction which must arise in your own mind from a conscious rectitude, my most perfect persuasion, that you have deserved well of your country. My personal knowledge of your exertions, while it authorizes me to hold this language, justifies the sincere friendship which I have ever borne for you, and which will accompany you in every situation of life. Ron Chernow would point out that in accepting the resignations of Jefferson and, when the time comes, Hamilton, Washington would begin the letter with Dear Sir, while with Knox, he only began it with Sir, and point to this as evidence of a strain in their relationship and of Washington not having tried hard to convince Knox to stay. How much this assessment is colored by the knowledge of what would transpire later between the two men is difficult to say. However, there is no question that that this marked a turning point, both in the relationship between Washington and Knox, as well as in the history of the administration. For now, though, we must draw this episode to a close. Next time, in order to prepare you for the introduction of the next Secretary of War, we have to step back for a moment to look at U.S.-Native American relations in the South. That should give Jay's Treaty enough time to cross the Atlantic so that we can turn back to it two episodes from now. We're drawing close to 1795. And for those of you in the know, that means that another presidential election is just around the corner. Be thinking of questions that you may have and that you can send my way for the Q&A episode at the end of the Washington series. It will be here sooner rather than later. As always, I can be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. As always, special thanks to our audio editor, Andrew Foncook. Neither rebellions nor ruffled feathers would come across quite so clear without his talents. If you, like me, can use his assistance with your next audio project or podcast episode, reach out to him via email at andrew at Foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. To listen to more of his work, should you have missed an episode, check out past episodes online at presidencies.blueberry, That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. You'll also find sources used for this episode, as well as information about all the various ways you can subscribe to this podcast to ensure that you don't miss a single episode moving forward. You can also search for the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or TuneIn. Special thanks again to James Early for providing the intro for this episode. And go check out presidentialfightclub.com for some great analysis on our battling chief executives. As always, I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your day to listen. Until next time, take care, dear friends. I'm Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast.